0: We are still in the book of uh, the letter according to 1st Peter. Um, we are in chapter 4. So turning the Bible to 1st Peter chapter 4, we will be in verse 7 to verse 11. 1st Peter chapter 4, verse 7 to verse 11. You know, summary uh, statements are a helpful way to get to the core of an issue. If you're reading a long essay or a summary statement either at the beginning or the end of that essay, it helps you understand how the author has gone about defending uh, what he or she has written in the essay. Uh, He or she mentions the key points that they have argued for in in the article or the essay. So what is a summary statement? It's a concise overview of the essay's main points in a summary format, in a few words. And the passage that we come to today is a summary statement of the Christian life. Uh, in about 80 words in the original language, uh, Peter proceeds to summarize the Christian life for you and for me. Uh, this is our seventh lesson uh, in the letter of First Peter. And we have learned that Peter has written this letter to prepare his audience uh, to stand firm uh, through suffering. Now, they are either already suffering or anticipating going through suffering. And because it's not just a personal letter, because it is God's inspired word, uh, there is an application for us as well in the 21st century. You see, Peter is equipping you and he is equipping me to face suffering in a, in a way that is truly God-honoring and Christ-exalting. And so it's appropriate to take stock of the tools that Peter has provided so far for us in helping us to stand firm through suffering. Just a quick walk through uh, this epistle. First Peter, uh, in chapter 1, remember, we began with Peter reminding us of what God did for us in our salvation. Now, when we go through tough times, it's so helpful to remember that the God who spoke everything into existence, he loved you, he loved me, and he gave himself up for me he gave himself up for you and because he has saved you we are now ready to prepare our minds for action we are prepared to suffer first Peter chapter 1 verse 13 and how do you do that how do you prepare for suffering well you pursue holiness Uh, you love one another verse 22 to 25 Uh, chapter 2 verse 1 to 3 you desire the pure milk of God's Word Uh, you offer up spiritual sacrifices you abstain from fleshly lusts we are prepared our minds for action but not only that such a life that is prepared to suffer will display a submissive attitude that's another tool that Paul that rather Peter gives us he says be submissive to the government uh, civil authorities be submissive in your work environment be submissive in your marriage and be submissive in all of life a submissive attitude is seen in a mind that is ready to submit and a heart that is ready to suffer. But such a heart is not on its own. We have an example for us in our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Last week we learned that Christ died for our sins, he suffered, and his suffering brought us to God. And in suffering for us, our Lord lays down an example for us all of these things are tools in our toolbox to help us stand firm through suffering so that brings us to the passage uh, that we have today first peter chapter 4 verse 7 to verse 11 the end of all things is near therefore be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer above all keep fervent in your love for one another Because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. You see, everything that Peter writes in this section flows from what he mentions both at the beginning and the end. Notice how he starts. The end of all things is near. And then at the end, to whom belongs, he says, glory and dominion forever and ever. And then, from starting from verse 7, part B, if I can call it that, he goes on to issue a series of actions as a result of the fact that all, the end of all things is near. And so I've titled our lesson for today, Living on the Edge of Eternity. Living on the Edge of Eternity. Uh, what are we to do? How are we to act as the end of all things draws near? the answer is found in this passage that I just read for us this is as good a summary of what our life should look like as believers as we can get from the scriptures Uh, first of all there are four things that I want to mention as far as as regards living on the edge of eternity first of all is our motivation secondly our mentality thirdly our occupation By that, I do not mean our employment, but what are the things we need to be occupied with? And fourthly and finally, our our goal. So first of all, our motivation. Notice what Peter writes there. He says, the end of all things is near. Uh, Peter begins this section by drawing our attention to the fact that the end of all things is near. We have a pressing motive, an incentive to do what we are doing. And that incentive, that motive, is to remember that the end of all things is near. Now the word therefore, th- the word "end" is the Greek word "telos," and the word tends to convey a wrong idea when translated as "end" as it has been here. End is perhaps not the best way of translating the word "telos." When we say "end," we mean termination," or it means uh, a closure of something. It is to cease to doing something. But that is not the idea here. The idea here is that of consummation. Uh, There is a goal that has been achieved. There is a purpose and it has been fulfilled. So it's not simply the end of something. Rather, it's the culmination, the consummation of something. It is to bring something to maturity or completeness. This is a word from which we derive an argument for God's existence, which we commonly call as the teleological argument and basically what people are doing there believers are doing there is to say that there is design in this world and therefore it points to a designer now that that is the word that is used used here but what is the consummation of all things uh, what is Peter referring to when he says end of all things uh, this has to refer to the second coming of Christ now this is the uh, salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time says Peter in chapter 1 verse 5 uh, this is the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ and so when he says end of all things he's referring to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ uh, this is the imminent return of the Lord Jesus Christ our motivation as we live on the edge of eternity is that our Lord is going to return any time now he's coming and that should be a wonderful incentive to be busy at work when is he approaching well Peter says it is near it is approaching it is at hand how close is it it can happen anytime before we are done here before the next word is out of my mouth listen to Paul's language in first Corinthians 15 verse 51 and 52 he says behold I tell you a mystery we will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. How quick in the twinkling of an eye. Now 1 Thessalonians 4, in verse 15, he writes, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up. That's where we get our word rapture from. We will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. You might say, if it is near, then why hasn't it already happened? I remember when I came newly to the, to the country used to listen to all sorts of different radio programs. And one of these programs, this gentleman would say, he is coming in 2005. And then I later on read that he was the same one who said in 1988, 88 reasons that Jesus Christ will come this year. Apparently it didn't turn out to be true. Now you might say, well, if Peter wrote almost 2,000 years back and the Lord has not yet come, so what does that tell us? Well, it tells us that if the Lord's coming was near 2,000 years back, how much more nearer is it now compared to when Peter wrote. We are nearer to Christ's return than any generation before us. It also tells us that Lord expected that the Lord expected every generation after his ascension To live in eager anticipation and imminency of his coming. Every generation. Are we then really living in the last days? Well, the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 and 2 says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world you see the last days began with the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ we are to live then with our eyes to the skies we are to live like the wise virgins who were prudent uh, who took oil in their flasks along with their lamps the end of all things is near also reveals to us about something that is unique to the Bible I don't know if you have given thought to this any time but it reveals to us a biblical view of looking at time, and it is linear. It's not circular. Well, what do I mean by that? Uh, to be linear means one things follow, one thing follows the other. Uh, circular means that it goes uh, in time repeating itself. So for example, Hinduism and New Age movement uh, views time as circular, which is to say that the beginning is really not the beginning, but the end. And time never ended because it never started. Well, well, that even sounds confusing. Well, you're born, you die, and you're born again, is what they say. You keep going in circles. If you've heard the word reincarnation, uh, that's another word that goes with such a philosophy. There's only one problem with this there is no evidence for such a view of time. Uh, secondly, there is the atheistic view of time. Uh, There is no purpose according to this view, no meaning, no design. And so we are born, we die, and that is the end of it all. Again, no evidence that death is the end of everything. The biblical view of time is that it is linear. Uh, There is a beginning and then there is a consummation. Uh, It is moving in a certain direction. And we get a glimpse of that even in our earthly life. All of us, when we were born... We were helpless babies when we were born. And every year, we are moving towards maturity, toward adulthood. And so we see that even in the biblical worldview. Because the end of all things is near, there is a sense, or there should be, a sense of urgency in our living. Uh, There's a sense of urgency in everything we do. Uh, There's a sense of purpose. There's a sense of design. History, as someone has said, is his story and it is moving towards consummation now if that is true and it is what should such an incentive such a motivation do to our behavior the rest of the paragraph answers that question for us in fact everything that flows from here on till the end of verse 11 is a result of this sense of urgency that is why Peter uses the word therefore uh, because the end of all things is near Therefore, it behooves us to have a certain mindset, a certain perspective, a certain mentality. Now, what is that mentality? That brings us to the second, our mentality. What is that? It's cultivating a sound judgment and a sober spirit for prayer. Uh, Cultivating a sound judgment and a sober spirit for prayer. First of all, be of sound judgment, he says. Uh, The word there means to be of sound mind. It's to be sensible. Uh, this is a person who has a wise attitude he or she is prudent Uh, this person acts in an appropriate manner given the circumstances apart from sound judgment some of the other translations translate these words as sensible or someone with a right mind now what is a right mind well you'll remember the time we spent in Mark chapter 5 when we were studying Mark about the man who called himself the Legion and he was possessed by demons he is a man described as someone who was with an unclean spirit someone who was not in the right mind someone who did not have sound judgment and so our Lord meets him this is Mark chapter 5 verse 1 to 20 Uh, our Lord confronts him and then he gives permission to the demons in him to enter the herd of swine that are that are feeding on the mountain the unclean spirits enter the swine they rush down the steep bank into the sea and the text tells us that about two thousand of them were drowned in the sea the herdsmen after they see this they run into the city and report this and the people come to see what has happened when they come to see we're told in Mark chapter 5 verse 15 it tells us that the man who was formerly demon-possessed is not demon-possessed anymore He was previously on his feet and on his knees bowing before Jesus. He is now sitting down, perhaps at the feet of Jesus. Uh, He was not clothed before, but now he is clothed. And then the text tells us he was not in his right mind before, but now is in his right mind. Sound judgment. Now what brought about that change? It was the encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. He was not in Christ before, but now he is in Christ. He is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. And so to be of sound judgment is to be in Christ and to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. That is what it means to be of sound judgment. But not only that, he says, secondly, be of sober spirit. Very closely related with sound judgment. uh, This has the aspect of being spiritually alert or watchful or observant. Uh, This is an individual whose guard is always up. They're not celebrating over the top when they've gained some sort of a spiritual victory and then they lower their guard. No, this is an individual whose guard is always up. Uh, there is a steadiness in their approach to the ups and downs of life. Uh, Paul uses a similar word in 1 Thessalonians 5. He says, So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. Now, he doesn't mean that you cannot go to sleep in the night. What he means is that the whole demeanor that we need to have is one of sober spirit, one of alertness, one of watchfulness. Uh, Peter appreciates this word. In fact, he has used this before in chapter 1, verse 13. He writes, Therefore, prepare your minds for action, keep sober in spirit. And then again, he uses it here. As well as chapter 5, verse 8, he says, Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. A sober spirit? Be watchful. Be alert. Ah, so both being of sound judgment and being sober spirited have to do with cultivating a certain mindset. Uh, Peter says, Be of sound judgment. Be of sober mindset. Why? At the end of verse 7, he says, for the purpose of prayer. So thirdly, we are to be men and women of prayer. As the end draws near, be watchful of being a man, being a woman of prayer. But you might say, how is sound judgment and sober spirit connected with prayer? You see, a mind that is not sound and a spirit that is not sober is the most vulnerable position to be in. You might say, vulnerable from what? vulnerable from the attacks from Satan. And when you are in the most vulnerable position, your mind is held victim by your emotions and passions. And the mind is not in control. It's out of control. You see, prayer for such a mind that is not in control is not at the top of the list. What is prayer? It is to commune with our Holy Father, our Holy God. When our mind is not sound and our spirit is not sober, prayer as a spiritual privilege goes to the bottom of the list. You know, when we are tired mentally, you probably have experienced this. Prayer is not certainly the first thing that comes to our mind, but it should. Uh, Therefore, he says, be of sound judgment, be sober-minded for the purpose of prayer. Now, how do we influence our mentality? Uh, What can we do to have sound judgment and a sober spirit? Now, For someone who is an unbeliever, only an encounter with Jesus can give you sound judgment and a sober spirit. For most of us here, we are already followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. We can maintain a sound mind and a sober spirit in regularly and consistently feeding our mind on God's word. Isn't the psalmist who says in Psalm 119 verse 99, I have more insight than all my teachers for your testimonies. Your word is my meditation. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12, the writer of Hebrews says, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Now that's what God's word does for us. James compares it to a mirror. Uh, when we see ourselves in a mirror, uh, we, we see what is there. We see a reality. If there is a donkey seeing itself in the mirror, what does it see? It's not a trick question. <laughs> if a sinner sees himself in the mirror, what does he see or she sees? A sinner. And that's what God's word is. And so we are to long for the pure milk of God's word, so that by it we may grow in our salvation. Uh, John MacArthur actually quoting this passage, uh, on, writing on this passage says, Holy living comes when believers read and meditate on God's word daily, so as to know the thoughts of God and commune with him according to his will. Well said. Uh, feed your heart on God's word. But I would add this, and again, this is not in the text, so these are my own thoughts, but I think you will find them helpful. I would add this, be careful what you let your eyes watch. Because what you watch feeds your mind and impacts your heart. A number of scholarly articles I was looking at this week and and research tells us uh, that being online and watching the tube for a prolonged period of time impacts our capacity to think. One article says, prolonged time in front of the television or some screen leads to reduced amounts of cranial gray matter, which is home to the neurons that perform the bulk of our mental processing. Once you're mentally exhausted, it impacts your time, not only in the word, but it impacts your capacity to pray. So be careful what you watch. Make sure you're feeding your soul on God's word. When we are men and women of sound judgment, sober spirit, and given to prayer, such a perspective, such a mindset then helps us to be of use in the Lord's kingdom. We are occupied in the right things. You see, living on the edge of eternity influences our motivation, influences our mindset, and it influences, thirdly, our occupation. By that, I mean things and activities and people that we are engaged with verse 8 to verse 11 what should we be occupied with well if I have to summarize these verses I would say this we should be occupied with serving the people of God our usefulness our being occupied is seen in three areas in these verses notice that all three areas have something in common if you look at verse 8 it uses the the word one another Uh, verse 9 one another and then again in verse 10, one another. Uh, first of all, it is seen in the area of our love, says Peter. We are to fervently love fellow believers. Keep fervent in your love for one another, he says. Uh, the word fervent there pictures a stretching and, and straining. Uh, there is a perseverance and there is a consistency or constancy. Some other translation translations use the word deeply. Uh, some use the word intensely. Intensely love one another. Uh, earnestly love one another. Uh, the word that conveys a deep passion for the good of another. You know, you can command to love someone because love is not primarily an emotion, but it is primarily a matter of the will, which then leads to action that's why with God's help if you will to love someone you can how is love and action well you we only have to read first Corinthians chapter 13 to get to know that but let me read a, a portion of that in verse 4 Paul writes love is patient when you are patient towards your spouse your children fellow brother sister in Christ you are being loving towards them When you're kind, he says, love is kind and is not jealous. Uh, It does not brag and is not arrogant. It does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered. Uh, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Let me stop and ask here, is that the kind of love that marks your life for your brothers and sisters in Christ? Because when you love in this way, uh, Peter writes here in verse 8, such kind of a love covers a multitude of sins. Uh, This seems to be drawn from another proverb. Proverbs 10, verse 12, the writer says, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all transgressions. And then in James 5, verse 20, James writes, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death, and will cover a multitude of sins Now, what does it mean that love covers the multitude of sins now whose sins is Peter talking about here is he talking about the individual who extends the love or is, it, is he talking about the individual who receives the love well Peter's phrasing is probably intentional to include both the giver and the receiver of love so that we could think of both the giver and the receiver, whose sins are covered. I think about it this way. Every individual who has not repented and placed his or her trust in the Lord Jesus Christ is placing his or her trust in their own efforts and in their own works in order to be right with God. And the more they do that, the more sins they add to their account. But when someone is saved, when they are justified, there is a pattern of growth that is more Christ-like. And as such, the individual's life then shows a, a decreasing pattern of sin and an increasing pattern of holiness. That's why Peter could write, when you love someone in this way, it covers a multitude of sins. Uh, we see an example of that in Peter himself. you know, Overconfident and, and brash, we meet him in the Gospel of Mark in claiming to be willing to die for Christ But it takes a little servant girl to expose Peter's immature faith. And now many years later, we can see he he has matured in his faith. He's the author of two letters, and he's the influencer of what Mark records for us in his gospel. He knows what he's writing when he says, Love fervently, because love covers a multitude of sins. And who was Peter's example? It was the Lord himself, wasn't he? The Lord forgave Peter and then he restored him to fellowship after his denials. You see, to love someone fervently is to love them even when it hurts. It's seen practically in perhaps cooking a meal for someone. Uh, it's seen in not assuming that others will call a sick individual, but going ahead and calling them yourself. It's seen in not always keeping conversations to a mere greeting or and formality but really being interested in getting to know fellow brothers and sisters in Christ Uh, it's seen in mourning when they are mourning and rejoicing when they are rejoicing it is if I can put it this way it's to love someone to the point of exhaustion that's what it means to love someone fervently you see your love for your brothers and sisters in Christ is to be one that is stretched and strained love them fervently fervency in love secondly flattery in hospitality when I mentioned this word to Esther yesterday she thought I had misused the word Uh, but I don't use the word flattery in the sense of insincerity but in the sense of making someone feel honored and pleased verse 9 Peter writes be hospitable to one another without complaint Uh, the greek word there literally means a love of strangers you see when you love someone you open your heart to them and when you're hospitable to someone you open your home to them you see in the time that immediately followed our lord's ascension as believers began to grow they did not have large buildings to gather so they gathered in homes Uh, even today there are many parts in the world where believers gather in homes of other believers on the Lord's Day Uh, not only as a church but there were a number of evangelists who were traveling from town to town village to village proclaiming the gospel and these evangelists would carry letters of recommendation with them which established their authenticity and such evangelists such traveling evangelists were hosted by homes who were perhaps meeting them for the first time but the instruction to be hospitable here goes beyond just being a place for the a Lord's Day meeting. It goes beyond a place, uh, beyond being a place for traveling preachers where they were hosted. It includes your home being open for fellow believers, uh, for support and encouragement, uh, for fellowship and comfort, uh, which is so important in a hostile culture to which pa- Peter is writing. Uh, Peter goes on to add, "Don't do this," he says, with an attitude of compulsion. Don't do it with complaining or murmuring. No, it is to be done without complaining. A flatter fellow believers with hospitality. Fervency in love, a flattery in hospitality, and thirdly, and importantly, faithfulness in service. Here we encounter Peter's third and final one another. It is to use our gifts, use your gifts, use my gifts, to serve one another. Uh, Peter begins by reminding his readers and each one of us Uh, that we have received a special gift in that sense all of us are gifted a word there for gift is the word charisma it means that which is freely and graciously given it's a favor that is bestowed it's a gift now if you're a follower of Christ you're gifted Uh, I don't say that to be kind to you that's what God's word teaches us here each one is gifted uh, we're not just gifted to show up, by the way. No, we are gifted to to serve. <laughs> we're gifted to serve. Uh, Peter goes a step further and he says, each one of you has received a gift. Uh, the NASB places emphasis by adding the word special, and it is special. So let me stop here for a moment to reflect. You know, when Peter says each one of us has received a gift, it means that if you are a follower of Christ. Uh, then you have received such a spiritual gift so we are not to say you know I really wanted to play the drums in the church but it looks like there's already someone who plays the drum so I'm not going to do anything in the church until there is a spot for me to play the drums now I don't play the drums by the way just in case you're wondering but we can have that mindset that okay someone is doing this so I'm not going to do that I'm going to just sit till Someone asks me to serve. No, we are all gifted. No, we have to, do, to go and do something else. We are to be busy, we are to be occupied in serving. I think one of the wonderful things to observe in a church such as Countryside, even when we first came here eight years back, is the number of people that are involved in serving each other. I don't know a percentage, but certainly has to be more than 60. Some might say more than 70, 75 compared to an average of about 10 to 15 percent in other churches so we be thankful for that uh, not only all of us are gifted we have received this gift uh, this is not something we deserve uh, it's it's given to us and it's given to us from God as he sees fit uh, he has the view of the body of Christ that no one else has And he knows exactly what is needed for that body to function in a healthy way. And it is he who gives the gift. And so we don't have programs to manufacture gifts for believers who come here. No, it is God who gives the gift. Knowing that we have a gift and we have received it from the giver of all gifts, what kind of an attitude should that develop in us? Humility. Humility. It should humble us. You see, we don't have the time to waste coveting someone else's gift. We may be better at the gift God has given us than some compared to others, and we may be still improving in that gift compared to somebody else, and we need to improve and sharpen our skills more. Regardless of where you are or I am, of the spectrum of gifts, the attitude that should mark us all is humility. But thirdly, he says, we are to put our gift to work in serving one another. is verse 10, employ it in serving one another. Uh, it is not something for self-promotion. It's not to put the spotlight on ourselves. It is to be put to use to serve a fellow believer. Why? Because that's why God intended it to be used for. But secondly, and more importantly, when I do that, I am being, notice at the end of verse 10, a good steward of the grace of God. What is a steward? He's not an owner. He or she is a caretaker. It's a loan that is given to me for which one day I am to give an account to God for it. Every one of us has a gift. Every gift given from the gracious hands of God is for a purpose. And I must and you must do everything you can to use it for that purpose. Now, it's because God's grace that we are recipients of this gift. And we are to be good, godly stewards of that gift. Now, there are four locations in the scriptures where a list is provided for us. I prefer to use giftedness rather than a gift. And you will see on the page, page two of your notes, or rather your outline, Uh, I have drawn this list from Pastor Tom's study on Romans chapter 12, verse 6 to verse 8. There are, he says, a total of 18 gifts mentioned in the scriptures, and 10 of those 18 could be categorized as gifts that are temporary in nature. They were only given for a certain period. I have grayed out those gifts at the bottom. I've also provided a definition from his slide so that it's helpful to understand what does that particular gift entail or how is he define that gift there are temporary sign gifts and then there are eight gifts that are categorized as permanent edifying gifts and you will see there are two larger categories that I've mentioned there and by the nature of their purpose they are defined in those ways So when Peter what Peter is doing here as you look at verse 11 he is providing us two broader categories of gifts and saying this is what it boils down to there are speaking gifts and then there are serving gifts now it's not to say that there is a hard line of division between those two gifts because let's say someone is not a formal uh, teacher here at our church but if he is the husband at home he's the husband here as well but if he's the husband then at home he has the role of being involved in teaching his family may not be in a formal setting such as this and so you see how those two gifts overlap Uh, for example we um, uh, I I serve with the single adults and I teach there regularly on Wednesdays Uh, but if I see something lying on the table that doesn't need to be there I shouldn't be saying oh my gift is teaching you know it's not serving and so I wouldn't pick that up no you see those those gifts overlap uh, but there are uh, certain individu- individuals that God has called to teach his word and there are others who, has, who he has highly gifted in serving and so the first gift he talks about is the speaking gift uh, when we speak or more particularly teach we are to do that as one who is speaking the very utterances of God verse 11 a teacher of God's Word Uh, teachers in various settings there is the teaching from the pulpit Uh, every time the people of God gather together on a Sunday morning uh, there is teaching of God in our adult Sunday school like it's happening now and then there are teaching in different setups different ministries men's and women's ministries a teacher of God's Word what does he do he has the ability to read God's Word uh, to understand God's Word to apply God's Word and to explain God's Word he must be familiar with the rules of interpreting God's Word and he must explain or teach the scriptures with clarity and with passion the focus here is on the aspect of teaching but what must never be forgotten is the character of the teacher Uh, that's why if you consider the list that Paul has in first Timothy chapter 3 uh, out of the number of qualifications he gives for elders one is that of teaching And one is that of managing the household well, but all the rest are character attributes. Uh, They are what make up his integrity. Uh, They are exemplified by the elders, but they're expected from each one of us. A teacher cannot compromise on his character and then expect God to use him. You know, he may end up deceiving people for some time, but he can never deceive God any time. He must be a man of character and integrity. He must be above reproach, as Paul writes in First Timothy three. See, whenever a teacher of God's word teaches God's word, he is to teach as one. Peter writes here as one who is speaking the very utterances of God. You see, if you are teaching God's word, uh, you have the heavy weight of standing for God, standing in place of God as you teach His word, because you are communicating to God's people what God intends for them to hear. No wonder James writes, James chapter three, verse one, let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such, we will incur a stricter judgment. It's immediately applicable to those who teach in a church setting, but I see the application also for anyone who claims to open God's word and teach it in any setting. We are to give it the serious preparation that it deserves both in understanding the text and then in explaining it knowing that we are speaking the very utterances of God speaking gift but secondly there is the serving gift when we serve we serve knowing uh, that we are able to do that only with the strength that God supplies to us Uh, there can be no pride in serving You see, there can be a pride in standing in front of God's people and teaching the word of God. And similarly, there can be pride in being behind the scenes and trying to show how much better you are in serving compared to others. No, says Peter, there's no place for being puffed up. There's no place for being proud. Why? Because even the strength that you have to serve others is supplied by God. God is the giver of the gift to serve. And he's also the supplier of the strength to serve. Notice in verse 10, we are told our gifts are to be employed to serve. So in a sense, if I had to even put those two gifts together, it's, it would be the gift of serving. When Pastor Tom teaches God's word, he's serving the congregation through teaching our gifts are employed are to be employed to serve so whether we're speaking or serving someone there is at the end of the day serving taking place and serving always carries with it the attitude of humility it's where the Greek word uh, diakonos and from where we get our English word deacon comes from we're all gifted by God to serve notice one another Uh, so what have we learned about serving whether you're speaking or serving do it with an attitude of reverence towards God and do it with an attitude of dependency on God. Be faithful in serving, knowing that we are to be good stewards of the manifold grace of God. I remember when our son just turned four, you know, everyone who has their children growing up here uh, and who are around that age, they come across a teacher known as Terry King. And at the end of their time with Terry King, there is one Psalm that each one of them memorizes. And that too in King James Version. And that is Psalm 46. Just wonderful to hear them share that. And Ms. King has been serving for more than, if I understand correctly, more than 20 years. What an impact. What an impact for eternity. Be faithful in serving. We're living on the edge of eternity. The end of all things is near. And so with what purpose should we be doing this? What is to be our goal? Notice verse 11 at the end. Our goal is to do it all for the glory of God. So that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. In all things, whether in serving or speaking, our goal is that in all things God is glorified through Jesus Christ, uh, the one to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever. Now what does it mean to glorify God? Well, to glorify God is to honor Him by praising and worshiping Him. Uh, To glorify God is to acknowledge His greatness and His sovereignty and praise Him for that. Uh, Theologians distinguish between two kinds of ways in which God's glory is described. One is His intrinsic glory. Nothing you or I can do can impact or hurt that glory. It's intrinsic to him. And yet, as his creatures, we also ascribe glory to him. When we praise him, when we worship him, when we reflect on what his word says. You know, organizations have a vision and a mission statement. A vision focuses on the future, while mission focuses on the present. And Peter here is saying, do all you're doing for the glory of God. Almost sounds like a vision and a mission statement for us. Ascribe to him the glory he deserves. And then, here's the vision. Glory and dominion already belong to him now and forever and ever. Peter just bursts out in a doxology of praising this great God who supplies the strength for us to serve, who gives us the ability to speak, and who who puts us in action to use all the gifts that he has given us for his glory alone. See, we are living on the edge of eternity. Our Lord is coming, and the end of all things is near. Let me quickly list a few applications for us, all drawn from the text uh, that is in front of us. First of all, we have to live with a sense of urgency. To live with a sense of urgency. Now, this does not mean that you cannot take vacations cannot take some time off no it means that our whole attitude towards life is one that should display a sense of urgency and so there is no time to waste there's no time to waste Uh, secondly pray with a sense of dependency on God pray with a sense of dependency on God there's no words to be wasted there's no words to be wasted thirdly says love with fervency give it all let your love which is a part of your will displayed in actions let it be stretched and strengthened and strained in all directions let no actions go to waste no actions to waste no time to waste no words to waste no actions to waste and finally serve with an eye on the glory of God No intentions to waste, to just conclude that. We are to serve with an eye on the glory of God. We have no time to waste, no words to waste, no actions to waste, no intentions to waste. Do it all for the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these wonderful reminders from your word, a summation of what our life ought to be, whether we have 5 years, 10 years, 15 years, 50 years, we do not know but what we do know is that our desire is to serve you faithfully is to give it our all and to do it for your glory alone I thank you for Peter who exemplifies for us what it means to live a godly life help us to be people who are living with a sense of urgency Help us to be people with sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Help us, Lord, to be men and women of prayer. Help us to love each other fervently, uh, to be hospitable to each other, to serve each other, and help us to do it with an intention to bring you glory and honor. We ask these things in the precious and worthy name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.